Welcome to the MIT Sloan Sports Analytics Conference podcast presented by ESPN and 42 Analytics. This is Jessica Gelman, who along with Daryl Morey co-founded and chair the conference with a fantastic group of MIT Sloan students each year. Thanks for listening and enjoy. All right. Welcome back, everybody. We hope you're enjoying the 2020 Sports Analytics Conference. My name is Matt Cabrera. I am an MIT student at a, uh, in my second year. Uh, today, I have the pleasure of presenting today's panel, Sports Innova Gambling Innovation, Betting on the Future. Today's panelists will be Frank Frigo, co-founder of Edge Sports, Kip Levin, president of FanDuel Groups, Matthew Berry, senior fantasy football analyst at ESPN, Jeff Yaz, the uh, Managing Director at Susquehanna International Group, and our panel will be moderated by uh, Jeff Ma, co-host of Bet the Process. Today's uh, panel is also uh, sponsored by Susquehanna International Group, and it is part of the business track, which is presented by Ticketmaster. Today's panel will be approximately 45 minutes, followed by a 10-minute uh, period of Q&A, and you'll be able to submit uh, You'll be able to submit questions through Twitter using the hashtag FuturesBet, and we will send those uh, questions up to the moderator. So with that, I'll send it over to Jeff. Okay, thank you, Matthew. Um, so this is probably, I don't know, the fifth or sixth or seventh sports betting panel I've done here, and I would have to say this is the uh, most eclectic collection of panelists that I've ever had. And unfortunately, I like all of them, so I won't have the chance to really go after them, but I'll do my best. Uh, wanted to start first by doing a quick introduction. Um, I, I obviously think it's better for you guys to introduce yourselves. So let's start um, with Jeff. You give a quick introduction of yourself, and then I'd like you to also say, hey, in 10 years, the betting handle in the US will be X, and the biggest growth level will be Y, where X and Y are things that you fill in. So. I am. Uh, that was, that's helpful. Thank you. That was mostly for you, Matt. <laughs> I appreciate yeah. that very much. I'm uh, Jeff Yassa, Managing Director of Susquehanna International Group. We're an options trading group, but we started a, a sports betting operation in both in Dublin and right outside Philadelphia. I think the consensus uh, number for the amount of volume in the next 10, you know, 10 years from now is about $250 billion. Uh, but we're hoping the number could be a multiple of that if the uh, if the sports betting world goes the way uh, you know, options exchanges and stock exchanges went, where uh, the technology is very fast and very efficient, the cost of trading drops to almost zero. And if that happens in the uh, sports world where we need a little help from some legislation, I think the 250 number could easily go to a trillion. Uh, and that's what uh, we're hoping uh, to see uh, happen. Matthew? So uh, I'm Matthew Berry. I'm uh, the senior fantasy sports analyst for ESPN, which is literally my title, so a little weird. Uh, I'm also a cast member of Avengers Endgame, just like throwing that out there. It's not really a big deal, but it was the highest grossing movie of all time. No big deal. Um, <laughs> Mostly because of your appearance. I'm just saying, I've been in one movie, it made the most money of any movie worldwide, so on a per movie basis, I am the highest grossing actor of all time. I mean, we are at an analytics conference, right? I mean, that's... Stats are stats. I'm not making up numbers. I mean, uh, it is what it is. We can move on to Kip. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so uh, I was going to say north of 200 billion in terms of in terms of total handles. So you know, and, and uh, Jeff has looked at it obviously much closer than I. So uh, I would buy the 250 billion number here. And in terms of how it will get there, I think 
there needs to be the ability to uh, have easy and quick registration on quality mobile products in all states. So, I mean, you know, having to wait in line at a casino, some, some that aren't in, you know, major metropolitan areas, I think, you know, is a, uh, is a challenge to getting there. But if you have quality mobile products in every state that people can, you know, easily sign up, deposit, and enjoy that, I think that's important. The other thing that I will say is also making, for lack of a better phrase, making gambling less scary to people that have never done it making you know, uh, terminology and understanding the, the gaming and the way to do it in a much easier, fan-friendly way uh, for people that have never done it before but are interested in the idea. Kip? Thanks for letting me go after uh, Matthew. I really appreciate that. Like for future, uh, you know, <laughs> You'd like you've been, any, any, you've be been in any Most movies people. that have... <laughs> right. um, so I'm the president of, of FanDuel Group. Um, I think everybody knows FanDuel as um, a daily fantasy company. Obviously, we're now um, a lot more than that. Uh, you know, we are um, in sports betting now in seven states, um, soon to be more mobile in four of those seven. Um, it's been really amazing to sort of see the transition into that. We also run a, a number of other businesses, obviously still very much in the fantasy business, which um, I think you, you guys know very well, and then also run a business called TBG, which is in online horse racing. Most people don't know that um, horse racing and betting on horse racing has been the, the sport that's been legal um, the longest. It's been largely legal for, for most of the, the last 10 to 15 years um, in 34 states or so. Um, so that's also, uh, I think, excited about the sort of the future for that sport and what opening of, of sports betting will do there. Um, so, you know, much different business than I think FanDuel was a couple years ago. Um, I think, you know, great points by, by both. I mean, we are on the front lines of state-to-state um, -state, uh, legislative battles and regulations and so on, and I do think that that is probably, to me, the biggest kind of hurdle in place that we've got to solve, um, because you've got a lot of states um, that don't really have the infrastructure to sort of set up mobile betting where you can create a competitive market like you have in New Jersey, where they already had sort of a gaming um, commission there that um, you know, was, was eager and ready to go. Um, so I think that's a, that's a really big challenge. It's going to be, you know, I think, probably years before you get to that um, state in, in California. You know, New York is, you know, TBD. So you've got a lot of the major states. There's no gaming in, in the state of Texas. Um, so the reality of state-to-state -state legislation and, and regulation is, unfortunately, yeah, there's still a long way to go. Frank? I'm Frank Frigo. I'm co-founder of Edge Sports. Um, we are based in Louisville, Kentucky. We, we do a number of different things in the uh, sports analytics space. We are a consultant and provide technology in the sports betting arena. Um, we are a consultant and have technology for decision support tools for uh, NFL and CAA teams, also even in the high school market now. Um, we have uh, media relationships with NFL media, Fox Sports, where we provide some content and insights around decision-making, particularly in the NFL game. We own Football Outsiders uh, and also the Massey ratings, so we're adding some components to our offering. And then uh, we also, uh, more recently, are in the consumer space. So, you know, as you look at a conference like this and all of the analytics content that's out there, some amazing work being done, but really thinking about, you know, whether it's our own proprietary analysis or what's out there, making that more uh, digestible and accessible to the consumer, the folks that are 
interested in sports betting and fantasy and the more sophisticated fans. Uh, as far as the handle, thought about it hard, kind of looked at some uh, benchmarks from some other countries and, and sort of extrapolating on what we're seeing here in the U.S. My number is 185 billion. I think uh, it certainly has a lot more upside beyond that. Um, in terms of you know affecting that, I think it's going to be crucial to have a, a viable exchange in the U.S. Um, to drive liquidity. And uh, are you guys in cahoots? You and Jeffrey? <laughs> no, I, I, mean, I just think that. I, I do think that. So. <laughs> All right, so l let's talk about this for a second. Nice use the, of the word cahoots, the, by the, the way. The, the, I didn't the, think that was going to be on the panel today. Okay. So yeah. uh, Matthew is here for comic relief, clearly. Um, <laughs> the numbers that you guys threw out there, $200 billion for the overall handle in 10 years. I would venture to say, then why should I care about this industry? Because a $200 billion handle, and what would you say the margins on that will be 10%, roughly? No. Less? No, less 7%? That. Yeah. So 7%. So what is that, Matt? What's the math there? What's the revenue there? It feels like it's a lot. It's it feels a 14, like more than I make. It's about a $14 billion yeah. revenue business yeah. spread amongst a lot of players, a lot of people in the ecosystem, the tax dollars that come from that. It's... it's it's got to be bigger, or we have to think that it could be bigger for us to get really interested in this, right? So I want to talk about how do we create a trillion-dollar handle business, right? And how do we get there in 10 years, and what are the ways that we can do that? So I'll throw out to all the panelists, how do we grow the industry? Like, what is the best way? Like, I've heard all, you know, the, the regulations, all that kind of stuff, that's obviously very important, but, you know, Ideally or hopefully that will get solved, right? That's only that's like sort of the the easy answer of how this happens There are much bigger questions I think that we have to think about you know in terms of structure like exchanges and things like that in terms of um, Bookmakers willingness to take action larger bets that they would that they know have a smaller EV than maybe some of the other bets They're gonna get um, These are all things that that need to contribute like simplicity in the vernacular or whatnot um, I'll, I'll start with you, Jeffrey. Like, you, you know, I know you're very big on exchanges. Um, can you describe a little bit about like, what you guys have done or what that looks like in Europe and how you think that could play out in the U.S.? Thanks. I think the way to uh, enhance the customer experience is to make it as simple as possible. So, for example, if you're betting the Super Bowl and uh, uh, San Francisco's up by 11 in the fourth quarter, they're 85% to win, and you just see a number 85 and you can either buy San Francisco at, 80, at 85 and it settles to 100, or you can sell them at 85, and you made the whole 85 as it goes to, uh, zero, to, goes to zero. So one number throughout the game that uh, represents the probability of the team winning and it settles to either zero or 100 is very, very simple for people to understand. And what we find in Europe, the betting, and we think it's going to come to the United States, that the majority of the betting will be in-game, not pre-game. In-game betting is much more interesting. Uh, the game, as the game's fluctuating, you're getting to have an opinion on, what you want, uh, on who you think is strong and who you think is weak. So it's sort of a more stimulating intellectual experience. And if we can make it as simple as possible with one number, then I think fans will like it. Also, that I might want to challenge that 7% revenue number. Uh, you know, that's, to me, the old days. In the new days of an exchange, that, uh, that number would shrink dramatically to like 1%, where a person buying or selling during a game would barely 
uh, give up any VIG at all, because he might be trading. He's probably trading with another customer. There's no bookmaker in between. The bookmaker just sort of keeps things in line for times of illiquidity. But for the most part, it's peer-to-peer. -peer. The betting is taking place, and there is essentially no VIG at all. That, you know, we, I've seen from the options market, the stock market makes volume explode. People care about paying $5, uh, losing $5 or 100 dollar bet or losing one dollar when it goes to a dollar we think there's an exponential uh, explosion in, in the uh, in the volume that engages people and uh, that's what we're hoping happens similar to what we saw with the explosion in volume in the stock market and the options market when the technology enabled it to be essentially free so Kip you run or your company runs probably the biggest betting exchange in the in the world yeah um, Jeffrey, you were showing me some screenshots from um, and talking a little bit about what happened in Europe last night on uh, the Lakers-Bucks game. You, I know we talked a little bit, and, and you say that that business is kind of going down, right, in terms of the overall volume. I mean, there, there's, there's less growth there. So I do think that if you think about the total U.S. market, I think there's absolutely a place for it. I do think that there is huge potential growth. I think you know, we, we actually brought it to the U.S., um, in horse racing in New Jersey. Um, and it's really interesting to see the dynamics of how the, the exchange works in horse racing. Because in horse racing, you know, it's, it's all paramutual betting. Um, there's 20% takeout. Um, the exchange has sort of proven in New Jersey that, um, that actually you can run the sort of smaller margin. Um, you know, the, the stat I always throw out is that, um, you know, $100 deposit into a, an online account in New Jersey and paramutual turns into about $300 worth of betting, a little bit more than that. $100 deposited into the exchange in New Jersey turns into about $1,400, right? So if you're, you're talking about overall handle and how do we grow it, yes, the exchange will do that. I think the limitations of the exchange are um, recreational consumers, which we think is a really exciting part of the growth in the, in the U.S. market, right? The people that have been playing fantasy their whole lives who want to come in and they'd much rather you know, rather than sort of figuring out the probability of are the Chiefs going to come back in the Super Bowl and, you know, can I get a, you know, can I make money that way? They'd much rather come in and bet on the over-under of how many yards is, is Patrick Mahomes going to throw in this game. And so I think it's, I, I think both. I think you have to think about a future where, you know, you, you have all of those things and it's not just about the exchange, which, you know, yes, there's huge customer. Yes, in a lower margin world, you'll, you'll, see, you'll drive that turnover number way, way up. Um, but you're never going to get sort of the recreational person who's been playing fantasy sports their whole life, like sitting on their couch at home um, to play the exchange, I don't think. Um, maybe you can, but I think they're, they're, you're much more likely to get them in and interested in betting where they can bet on player props and com you know, take all their, what they know, right, which is you know, player statistics and all that and, um, and betting in that way. So player props is interesting. Um, bring Matthew back into this. Um, conversation, you know, you're not a sports better, right? No, nope. but you certainly know a lot about player <clears throat> players and player props. Do you think that you would have an edge today betting player props? And do you see a world where you will become an expert on, you know, player props in sports betting because the analogy to fantasy is obviously very, very strong? Uh, expert how? You mean as a front-facing talent for ESPN? You mean like that I'm, I'm a ESPN betting expert? Well, I mean, it's the ultimate put your money where your mouth is, right? 
Like, right. If you are really someone I should be listening to for fantasy advice, <laughs> yeah, thanks. then I should probably be able to trust you to help me bet player props. Right. And the conversion that we're talking about here is the conversion of the casual fan to the sports better. So the people that play, what are, what are, okay, how about this? What are the numbers of people that play fantasy right now compared to the number of people that are sports betting, at least in somewhat mature markets? Like in other words, like is it, do you, I mean, Kip, I don't know if you know this or, or do you understand kind of I mean, the question? Like how, like is it, is it every, do we need to convert every fantasy person into sports betting to have sports betting become more relevant? Or is it a portion, is it a subset? You how do you guys look, think about I mean, this? <clears throat> well, look, I, I mean, season long, right, which is yeah. your world, I think has always been sort of the biggest. So I think it's probably comparable to the season long audience, the people who are interested in playing season long. You know, I think daily fantasy has always been a, a, a smaller subset of customers, you know, there's, I think season long, you would know yeah. even better than me. That's I mean, listen, <clears throat> uh, you can certainly question the, uh, the number, but the, the FSGA, the Fantasy Sports Gaming Association, uh, their research says 45 million people play season long fantasy in, you know, last year. So again, we can, we can debate how, you know, how real that number is, but we know it's a big number, whatever the number is in terms of how many people play. And, uh, we certainly have millions of people. We're going to take the under on that number. Fair, which is fair. But, I mean, we have, we have millions upon millions of people that play on ESPN. I, those numbers I know. Um, and I'm not allowed to share them, so I'm sure there's an ESPN PR person <laughs> somewhere here. Don't worry. Um, but what I would say is, is that, yeah, I mean, I think that we have seen it, right? We have seen that, that fantasy is a great onboard to making a sports gambler. It's, there's a natural progression there, right? And I mean, there, there's been all sorts of studies about that. And candidly, we're seeing it play out in real time, right? With, I mean, DraftKings and FanDuel, who were fantasy companies initially, are dominating the sports gambling market in America right now. And so, I mean, not, I think- That's not out of like necessarily a synergy that was out of a need or a business reason, right? So like what, what what I'm challenging, okay, now, so there's two directions. I, I, think there's a, I, think there's a, I think there are a variety of reasons why those two companies have leaped to the forefront in sports gambling, but I think one of them is, is that they had a large database of fantasy players to immediately market to once sports gambling came online in New Jersey and other states. They had great brand equity as well. They were well-known. You know, people were comfortable playing on that platform. I mean, there's a variety of reasons, but... Uh, I think there is, and just to sort of take it back to your original question, I will tell you that twofold. That number one is that, like, as you, if you consume, if you, Jeff, consume my content this year, you will see more emphasis on player prop type stuff. Not necessarily saying like, hey, I think you should bet the over on Russell Wilson over 275 yards, but will I say like, hey, his projection is this, I'm taking the over and here's why, sure. I think there's a lot of my content that uh, certainly lends itself to player prop uh, betting, and I will say this as well, that I think, you know, to your point about exchange, I'll say specifically to growing a more, uh, a, an audience that hasn't gambled before, that I think player props are a very easy on-ramp. Like it's a very easy for a fantasy player, as we talked about, like a fantasy player's you know, are making that decision. They're making that decision between, you know, Carson Wentz or Daniel Jones in their second QB spot. They're, they're instinctively making a decision on what they think those stats will be, right? And then if you give them, here's the line and here's, here's what they've done historically and here's the matchup, 
and why you think somebody's going to be over or under, then yes, I think that's, that's an easy way for a fantasy, a season-long fantasy player to be like, oh, I get that, and I want to have some action on this game, and so there's yeah, a bet I, I can play. It's, it's hard for me to agree that that's, less comp, that, that's uh, more simple than the illustration that Jeffrey's saying where you, know, you have a team that you're basically betting on, and if they win, they're worth 100, and if they lose, they're worth zero. I think we've, you know, fantasy has been a very, it, it, it's, people understand it. It's been around a long time. So sure. maybe there is that natural thing. Um, let's move on to, to content, which I know is, is near and dear to your heart, Frank, as you guys think about what to do with these assets you bought. Um, the sports betting content, and, and, you know, Matthew, I think one of the things that you and I have talked about, and I talked about yesterday with Doug Kazarian on his podcast, with this, was the notion of the responsibility that a mainstream media person like yourself has to make or not make recommendations that are betting related that may not actually be grounded on real betting analytics. So you, Frank, are now focused on creating and trying to build out content with real analytics behind it. How do you think about what kind of a business you could build there? And how do you think about whether you are actually providing value to a better to help them become a better better? Yeah, <clears throat> so the way that we look at it is you know, there's a lot of interesting content that people want to digest that, to inform their decision process. We want to fall short of being viewed as a tout service. We think that can, in some ways can cheapen it a bit by making, you know, here's our gold pick of the week or our blue pick of the week or red. I mean, but more about, you know, here's what we thought about these coaches' uh, decisions this past week. Here's what we think about rankings. Um, here's some simulated matchup information that shows some potential distribution of outcomes, but things that people want to process and use to inform their decision, increase their confidence, hopefully drive handle out of um, empowering them a bit, but, but offering it as kind of a menu to, you know, and to, to allow them to use it the way they best see fit. Yeah, I, so what's interesting, and, and I, I used to do um, TV stuff for ESPN, right? And when I first started to do that, I met with the producers and I literally said to them, I'm happy doing this, I'm excited to try this, but I'm not gonna give picks on air. A week later, I'm giving picks on air, <laughs> right? Because that's what everybody wanted. So, you know, you, one of your properties, Football Outsiders, is tremendous content, right? Aaron has done a tremendous job there, but they started giving picks and those picks didn't do particularly well. So like what kind of, you know, responsibility, you know, beyond, it's like, how do you avoid people, you know, giving people what they think they want, even though that's not really what's going to be valuable to them? Yeah, I mean, we, we are thinking hard about that. I mean, Outsiders obviously is great content, but that is an aspect of the site that we're sort of, you know, rethinking a bit um, in terms of just laying that out there in, the, in that way. Yeah, no, and, and, and again, like I, the mea culpa is like, that's just what people want, right? And that's the hard part about this. So, um, Okay, back, back to the idea of growing the business. So we have the notion of, you know, converting casual fans, right? That's the, that's the holy grail. Beyond saying, okay, uh, fantasy-type prop bets are an onboard to get people to betting, what are, what are other ways that we can do this? Like, what are, you know, like the recent Barstool deal with Penn National Gaming was you know, a big sign, right, of what the value is around here and how much people believe that, you know, media to commerce is the next step for sort of sports betting. Um, 
but is it like, are those types of things going to work? Does that brand, is that, is that going to be a great deal for Penn National? I guess it remains to be seen. I will say I thought it was a smart, from what I could tell, I thought it was a smart deal for Penn. Um, you know, Penn is a, a brand that didn't have really any kind of recognition. It was, um, or any kind of brand equity. And, you know, the Barstool audience is huge and highly engaged. And so it immediately gives that company a, you know, a, an identity. Um, and in theory, like, you know, access to a, a very large loyal fan base. I would add that uh, the stock went up about 20% on the, on, the, on, the, on the news, which was, it was up more than what they paid for Barstool. So uh, I certainly think the market reaction was this is a great idea, sort of a very stodgy company in Penn Gaming and a cool company in Barstool getting together was a great move for uh, Penn Gaming. So given the very positive market reaction to it, I would expect there'll be more, uh, more deals like that done. So then that, I mean, and I think you've seen, Bert, I mean, that was a very specific deal, but we've seen some versions of, of that deal before as sports, uh, as, as casinos or gambling companies have looked for customer acquisition, right? So we, you've seen the William Hill CBS deal, right? I mean, so MGM and Yahoo did a deal, and you know, we've got Penn and Barstool, and there, you know, there, there are other deals, you know? So like, you know, ES, ESPN has a, a studio at Caesars Palace, right? Or at the link looking across from Caesars Palace. So there, there are other deals where, comp, you know, where sports gambling companies I mean, yeah, are reaching just, out to media they're, properties they're trying media, to, right? Yeah. So like, so Kip, when you guys think about, like these are all about customer acquisition, right? The media deals, essentially you're trying to lower the cost of customer acquisition and find ways to do it. I mean, how do you guys think through these types of media deals for yourself? Or also, how do you think about what are, what are, the, what are the more sustainable or what are other forms of customer acquisition that you guys are looking for? Yeah, so, so I think we're, we're obviously big believers in the sort of combination of media brand and um, and Did you guys a, look at buying Barstool? Well, I mean, we have, you know, we have the TVG business, right, which is in right. horse racing. Like, we've proved that model for years. TVG, for those of you who don't know, the horse racing market is the, the biggest online um, horse racing betting app, and it's also the television network that broadcasts horse racing, you know, every day. So, so I think we know the model works, you know, and so I think it's, it's a logical sort of progression for, for how this is going to happen in, in the case of the, um, I mean, the other cases. Um, you know, Fox, right? Fox did a deal with, a, um, and, and actually if you look at the European market, that was sort of a, um, a replication of um, Sky, right? Which is the biggest media company in, in the UK, um, having Skybet. Skybet's one of the most successful um, online betting companies in, in Europe. So, so I think for sure it works. For sure there is, um, you know, going to be, I think, an increased interplay between sports media and gambling. Um, probably happening even faster here than I would have thought, given that you only have mobile now in a handful of markets. Um, so I would have thought it might have taken a, a bit longer. Um, so I think it's, it's absolutely going to continue to, to ramp. Did you guys look, look at buying Barstool? Um, I, look, we've had a long partnership with them as we've launched um, in there, so we know them well. So I would, you know, we'll leave it at that, but yeah. <laughs> well, no, I think, I think it will just highlight the reason that you guys didn't need to buy Barstool is you actually have a pretty strong brand right. already in the US. And Correct. the reason a lot of these media deals are getting done is not just customer acquisition, but it's brand also, because they're yeah. trying to create a consumer brand. Yeah, and for those in the audience who don't know the, the, the pen business, I mean, they're, they probably have, 
Um, the most sort of regional casinos, they've, a lot of them they've gained via acquisition, right? So they don't have a uniform brand like a Caesars or, or so on. Right. So for them it was, you know. But they have a lot of skins and access right. in, in regions right. and it's a very Probably desirable. Probably the most geographically diverse casino company in, in the US. Yeah. And, it, and I mean to that point about branding, like it'll be interesting to see once the El Dorado Caesars deal goes through, is what brand do they use? Because El Dorado's buying Caesars, but obviously Caesars is a much more well-known brand than El Dorado. Yeah. So it'll be interesting to see sort of what, what happens there just in the, that overall space. Okay, so let's just suspend all disbelief and say it is like a $1 trillion handle um, business, and um, a good portion of that is uh, being driven by the exchange, right? And that exchange, we think, Jeffrey, will be not governed under sports betting. It'll be instead potentially the SEC or the NFTC. Well, we're, we're going to need a little help legislatively that the, there's a rule from 1961, the Wire Act, which prevents people from betting across state lines. It, uh, it makes no sense anymore in a world where if it's legal in Pennsylvania, it's legal, legal in New Jersey, that you can't bet in New Jersey into a Pennsylvania market. So we're hopeful that that law goes away. It was set up for a different time and a different era. That has to happen uh, first. Then the liquidity pool will just be gigantic because people in California can bet with people in uh, Alabama and, uh, and the markets will be uh, much deeper, much tighter, much more, uh, much more liquid. And then uh, volume uh, you know, theoretically explodes. Okay, so let, let's say this world happens. What are some things that are going to need to change in the industry to support a mature financial market? Because right now it's very much of a cottage industry. It's like the yeah. wild, wild west. What do you guys think? What are some fundamental things that you guys think would need to change? Well, I would say that there's, there's two different views of it. Uh, some people think, and there's a lot of evidence uh, in Europe, that the customer is not that price sensitive that he can bet with a sports book and sometimes he's paying a five or 6% VIG or he can bet with an exchange and he pays a one or 2% VIG and yet they still go to the sports book. So that behavior you know, doesn't happen in the stock market but it does happen in the sports betting world. If the consumer is not price sensitive, then this explosion on the exchanges won't happen. Uh, I'm hopeful that they will be price sensitive and that they'll all migrate to the exchanges where they're going to get a much better deal. But there is a lot of evidence from Europe that that hasn't, uh, uh, that hasn't taken place where they do have uh, the choice there. So it remains to be seen in America. I know to institutions, if we want to appeal to you know, uh, hedge funds and Wall Street traders who want to bet big, they're going to be price sensitive. So there'll be enormous value, volume there but it might not be the lucrative volume that uh, the sports books get. Yeah, I guess what I'm getting at isn't necessarily the logistics of getting people onto the exchange. It's if we do have a, an industry where a trillion dollars is turning over in a, in a year, what other things are going to have to change about the industry? Specifically, what kind of, like right now, um, you know, if sports betting and DFS and fantasy are all pretty similar, you know, Matthew, when you and I talked, we talked about, you know, some of the ways that you get information um, about fantasy where you'll find out things from, you know, coaches or whatnot, um, that if we have a real financial market, this would probably be deemed insider trading at some level, but because it's still this sort of cottage industry, nobody cares. And, and, and how, how, 
how will we how, how will we think through that? I guess, and maybe you can illustrate a little bit of what we're talking about. Yeah, I mean, I I won't speak to being a legal expert, but I would tell you that any inside information I get, I publicize. I just mean I publicize it in that way. Uh, you know, an example I will give is like like if I hear from a coach, like, hey, we love this guy. This is this is a wide receiver we think that can win his matchup. This is somebody that we're going to target a lot. Like, I won't go on air and say, hey, guys, I heard from this assistant coach, and they really love this wide receiver. What I will do is I will say, like, hey, I love this wide receiver this week because, uh, because I've, I've found this stat and this matchup, and, oh, it's just a gut feeling or something like that. But that, inf I mean, like, I don't sit on information that, you know, I get, right? And so that information makes its way out there in terms of, like, the insider trading, you know, it's a... I mean, like, I think you're asking, like, if I bet on sports, which I don't. No, like, I, if I, I know something, right? I mean, I, isn't that I, the... What I'm asking, okay, is this industry right now has a lot of gray areas. 100%. Right? And from, from a responsibility as stewards of this industry, if, if it does get to the scale that we would like it to get to, what are the things that we need to clean up? before it gets to that scale. One, I would say, is, is like understanding information and information asymmetry and understanding like, you know, whether that looks like insider trading or not. Um, I think media around this industry, you know, needs to become better. Needs to, we need to push our media to be much better on this and it needs to not be, you know, a, an ex-athlete picking games because, you know, he knows a little bit about football but doesn't necessarily know anything about betting. So I'm just asking you guys, like, as we, I mean, this is something that people who are in power in this industry should be thinking about, because if, if, if we don't think about it this way, then there will be scandals, there will be problems, there will be prob people losing but money. Hang on for a second, though. I mean, I mean, like, I'm just, I'm thinking from, from, if I was a producer of a TV show, and I've got an ex-athlete on my thing, and we're talking about the game, we're doing a pregame show, and we're doing picks, who do you think wins this game? You know what I mean? Like... I think the Eagles win this game, whoever they're playing, right? I think, I think the Eagles play. Like, I don't think it's my responsibility as a producer to tell that athlete, hey, you're not a hardcore better, you know what I mean? You haven't done crunch the numbers. Like, whatever, you're an ex-Hall of Fame athlete. If you think the Eagles are going to win and you want to say that on air, you should be able to say that. And so I think it's fair if you say that you don't want that ex-athlete to say, like, I like the Eagles plus four and a half. But Fair that, enough, that's, but that's what they're saying, right? That's that's happening right now as this proliferates, you know, mainstream media. You are having these athletes say, "I like them plus four and a half." You are, they are, and that producer Some are, is that, that that producer is representing that this person is an expert by putting them on television. But who's I, to say, but who's to say they're not? I mean, I mean, like in all seriousness, like who's to say that an ex-athlete hasn't you know hasn't watched the film, doesn't have insight into that game? I mean, ultimately, right? Isn't it? Isn't I'm it on the not. consumer? I'm saying that most of these guys are not are not are not um, equipped to actually give gambling advice. They haven't done the work to do that. Like, would you trust an athlete? And would you put a position on because yeah. an athlete told you you would laugh, right? But I think and that's precisely what you bet against. I think an interesting question, and I don't know the answer. If you're a right. team, if you're the Lakers, but that's a different question, by the way. I'm sorry, I don't mean to interrupt, but that's a different question. The different you're asking. You're, there's two different questions here. Number one is, do media companies have the responsibility? to limit the people on air, on their platforms, uh, in front of a microphone, 
to only betting experts. That's what your question is. Do media companies have no, that that's responsibility? Not, that's not what I'm and then, that's no, not what and I'm then, saying. and then you're also saying like, and there's a separate question is whether people should take that advice. I think those are two separate questions. Okay, let Jeffrey go ahead. I would say if I would say the media has no responsibility. You know, anyone can say anything, but if you're the Lakers and. Uh, the market expects LeBron to play 35 minutes, and you know he's going to play 20, or you expect him to play 20 because the coach has his reasons for only playing 20. That coach, as of now, has no responsibility to say anything to anybody. But if there's you know, tens of millions of dollars bet on a game, would he now have a responsibility uh, to you know, share that information? Uh, right now, they're not publicly traded companies. They're not regulated by the SEC. He doesn't have to, he has no responsibilities at all, which is, I think is the way, obviously, the Lakers like it. But in the new world, would that change? And uh, I don't really know the answer. But that's, uh, what uh, that's, so, that's, so I think the core of what you're asking, right, is about integrity and how is integrity going to sort of evolve as these markets open up. And I think... It's, it's, what, so just, it's not just integrity, right? Like, yeah. this is one example of it. I, what I would love to, for us to really dive in as a group is to think about all the different repercussions. Yeah. Of, it's, it's easy to say, like, we want this to be a trillion-dollar handle. But, like, what, is that, what does it mean to, yeah. for that to happen beyond the easy things of saying regulatory blah, blah, blah? Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, no, what, what I was going to say is right, what, what, what needs to happen, right? I think access to information is going to change. I think, I mean, you're already, like, the NBA, to, to use your example, has already sort of changed how they're releasing injury information and obviously with players taking days off and so on. Like, access to that information has become more important. I think they're sort of committed. They realize that and they're committed to it. You know, I think that the other thing about integrity, you have to understand, is, and this is one of the values of actually legalizing sports betting, is that we as operators, like, it's critically important to us, right, that, that integrity exists, right? Because if, if all of a sudden somebody knows, you know, who works on a staff of a team that a player is not going to play what their sort of normal average minutes per game is tonight because they're going to be on a restriction, that's not out there, right? That player comes in and, and you know, bets $10,000 on the under in terms of the, the player's statistics, like, that's important, by the way, and, and the beauty of it is, it, like, we'll see that, right? Well, this person's never really bet this kind of volume and so on, and, and we can report that back to the league. So I think it will be sort of a, um, I think it will take care of itself, and I think, again, like, that data is there. We have people who are sitting and analyzing that data, people that we hire from this conference even, right, that are now equipped to go back and actually report that. And so I think that's an important thing. I think your question is, do these things need to happen? They are happening. Um, and I think they'll, you know, even continue to happen at a, at a, at a higher rate. Fred, did you have, I know you, you come from the trading world, so. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it, for it to get to a trillion dollars, you know, we have a lot of sports of interest in the United States. There's all kinds of potential for tradable products around those. We talked earlier about the binary options, trading and running. There's many applications for that. But you know, if the content's there, that the consumer feels empowered, that they understand that, and they understand it in the language of betting. So you know, with the media, to be able to, to, to speak that language a little bit more directly, often the talking heads will talk about, you know, they'll take a poll, and you know, who do you think's going to win? Well, that's great, but you know, that doesn't tell you everything you want to know about assessing a particular market, right? It's not just if you win or not, but if there's value, thinking in terms of this value context as a trader. But um, you know, I, I would hope that there's going to be lots of potential for additional product that's going to keep fans engaged. I mean, one of the great things about fantasy is you know, there's lopsided contests and, and fans are engaged throughout, right to the end, right? And I think that, that holds true of 
other in-running type of uh, in-play markets that they keep fans engaged. And I, so there's just a lot of product opportunity that if, if we can do it the right way, I think can really drive that handle. I also think along those lines, you know, it will expand to other things that will lead to that. So political outcomes is timely right here. I mean, on the exchange in Europe for the 16 election, we did over 200 million bet on the, the outcome of the US election. So you think about what that would be here, right? And the interest there'd be around volume and betting on you know, the primaries and then ultimately the general election. Like, it would be massive here, no state yet has allowed for betting on political outcomes. So I think there are probably other categories like that that would, you'd have to expand to, to imagine a world where you could get to that high um, of a volume of, uh, of handle. Also, just in, in value added that legalized betting would do, if you put up a proposition, will the, the coronavirus cancel the NCAA tournament, which is a, you know, a possibility, you can put that proposition up right now on Betfair or, or Matchbook, and the world will know what the probability is, and also the people who have a gigantic stake, whether they're gonna make money or lose money uh, with, with different outcomes, would get to hedge it. So it's not just the volume that, uh, that, that we're shooting for, it's the value added that, uh, that we're shooting for. Yeah, there, there's but, but actually- that's, the that's a different thing though, right? Because now you're talking about like, instead of positioning this as a, as a betting, right? We're saying, hey, we're, let's create real markets where we have hedgers that are gonna go and say, we need this to hedge away our, our risk, our sports-related risk or whatever it is, right? right? And like that's when you get to like these idea of like Hedge Street or some of these other things that were designed for hedging. And then obviously there'd be tons of speculators, so it would be a, a great market. Um, but that's different, than, that's different than the sports betting stuff, right? That's a completely, that's a flip to sort of say this is more utility than it is more entertainment. But I think, yeah. but to your point, I think in, in a world where you want to get, you, you think about a, a trillion dollars, I, I think that has to be part of the ecosystem. I mean, to use a real world example, like we have an, a market up on the Betfair Exchange right now. Um, you know, there's a big racing festival in Europe called Cheltenham next week about whether it's going to run or not. We've done over, I think, five million bet on that, um, on that market, so. And, and I will say just like very generally, like, you know, whether it's, whether it's the political, uh, outcomes or the coronavirus or anything like that. Just bets, and this was a this was a uh, comment that was made on the betting panel yesterday as well, which I think is like the more and you're and you're seeing this more with with the sports books now, right? But just the more that the bets can be offered in terms of what you're interested in real time, as opposed to like uh, you know in, in terms of the uh, you know in terms of sort of like for lack of a better phrase, the zeitgeist, right? I mean, like there there's a a like if there's a way to sort of uh, create opportunities for betting along with trending topics, you know what I mean? I think you will, you will find you know, massive opportunity yeah. there as opposed to just like, here's today's games. But when there's, you know, when there's, when there's focal point on whatever, the, you know, uh, a, a moment in time, I think you'll see, yeah, and that, those always I, happen. I think that's a good point, right? Which is, you have to build a world where people can bet on whatever they, they think of at the time, like customized betting, right? We have a product called, single game parlays, which is all correlated parlays on a, on a specific game. That was huge in popularity this year in NFL because people could come in on the, the Super Bowl and now they could bet who's gonna win, but they could then, you know, they could then parlay it with, you know, is Patrick Mahomes gonna throw for over 300 yards and you know, what's the total rushing yards and a bunch of different things. Like if they have a really strong opinion on the game and they, you know, they wanna win more than you know, just doubling their money on, on the outcome, they can, you know, and they, or fantasy fan and all those things, they can actually create a custom bet. And I think, you know, that's taking it to a, a you know, another level, at, you know, that, 
whatever the trending topic is, oh, I can, I can bet that right now. You have to get to that world. Right. Okay, we probably have a little bit of time for questions we can go into, and maybe those will spur some interesting, uh, let's see here, what do we got? Um, this is a good one. So are we overestimating, or how, how, how big of an impediment do you think the black market will continue to be in um, terms of the ability to grow uh, legal handle in the U.S.? So I think um, it's a great question. I think it's a, there, there are a lot of sort of structural things that continue to make it an impediment, even in a, a state like New Jersey, although I'd say probably made, um, and, and we, you know, we, we survey customers that we acquire, like, hey, where are you betting in the illegal market? I think that, you know, we are definitively converting people out of that market in, but I think as you, I think the, the biggest challenge we have, right, is the more you know, mucked up the, the, you know, legislation gets in different states, you know, putting barriers like, you know, having to go in-person sign up in a casino to start, like, you know, cutting out, you know, the ability to, to you know, bet on in-state college sports, right? Like, you know, I think the state of Kentucky was recently, is going through the process of possibly legalizing sports betting, and they were going to cut out, right, the ability to bet on in-state sports. So imagine being somebody who lives in you know, Louisville and you can't bet. <laughs> yeah, it's going like, to cut mean, out more than half of the interest. Right. Well, you just, people won't go. They're not going to have an app that they use to bet on the NFL and the NBA and then another app that they use to bet on college sports. They just will stay on the illegal market. So I think the, the biggest variable in our ability as legal operators to convert people out is, you know, are there just going to be all these restrictive things put into state-to-state -state legislation that, that are going to be impediments for people to, to migrate? Okay. Uh, yesterday, I talked a little bit about like my personal challenge around the ethics of helping grow sports betting, and you and I talked a little bit, uh, um, you know, before the panel about this concept. So, if we grow handle, right, it means that more people are going to be losing money, right? That's the reality of it. If we grow handle and revenue, so what? You know, how do you guys think about that as an industry, and like, how, what what is the value that we're actually providing by growing this industry? You got it. Yeah. Well, I would say, the the industry is about entertainment, and if I'm betting a hundred dollars on a sporting event very easily, and I'm losing a dollar, that's about as cheap of entertainment as I can imagine. It's cheaper than a movie or a beer or anything. So that yeah, people are going to lose money, but they're going to lose so little money for the value they're getting that it's just a fantastic uh, entertainment proposition. It's like saying you lose money when you go to the movies. You go to the movies, you lose $15, uh, but you like it. If you bet $100 on a sporting event for three hours, you got three hours of entertainment and it cost you a dollar. So uh, I view it as entertainment and it's, and it's, it's, it's a tremendous uh, uh, entertainment that's a, that hasn't really been actualized yet because of the rules, but once uh, it's legalized. Now we have this, we don't have to have movie sets and actors and spend hundreds of millions of dollars on a movie. We have the game that is just laying there waiting to be bet on. And it's uh, for no additional cost. There's this huge amount of joy that can be created uh, by allowing people to bet easily. So, uh, you know, my ethical dilemma is solved because this is cheap entertainment. Yes, some people will abuse it, but that's true. I mean, but won't anything. this be similar to what happened in DF with DFS, where there's like sharks and minnows, and the minnows are the ones that are entertainment, and you're the shark? No, uh, 
in, in DFS, if you don't know what you're doing, it's like playing poker. If you don't know what you're doing, you lose a lot of money. If you go into a marketplace that's efficient, which these would be theoretically, uh, no matter how uninformed you are, you're, you're not going to lose. You're, you're going to lose the same amount of money as a smart guy. There will be no sharks and no minnows. There are no sharks and minnows in the stock market. Everybody trades more or less at the same price. In DFS, there are sharks and minnows, but not in an exchange-based uh, sporting thing. So one of the things it will do, it will protect those who don't know anything and just want a fair shake. You don't have to know anything to bet. You know, uh, to uh, to bet and get the same price as an expert gets. You guys have any thoughts on that? No. I, I, the only thing I would add is just that you know what I mentioned earlier, just the engagement piece of it. That if you've got the right products, you have games that would otherwise be foregone conclusions and might be losing interest. But you know, along the entertainment lines, it just it creates a level of engagement. If there's a game, a lopsided baseball game, but there's very specific product around the ninth inning, I might be just more tuned in than I would normally be at that stage. So, the entertainment value is a really interesting point. And one of the things that I've sort of harped on in this industry is the sort of the lack of innovation as it pertains to the actual user experience, right? So entertainment, part of the entertainment is following the game and seeing how it does and the dopamine attached to seeing yourself win. Right now, the way that I find out if I win a bet is pretty similar to how I would check my balance in my online banking account, right? What are some things that you're, you guys are thinking about, Kip, in terms of innovation to make that experience of actually following the game less yeah. like a transaction and more like a game. Well, I, I think it's interesting to see, it goes back to the sort of integration with media. Like, for example, like we just started live streaming NHL games inside our app, right? And so you can imagine now, right? And we're, it, it's out of market, so we have you know, two games a night. Um, you know, if it's in New Jersey, obviously it wouldn't be a Devil's game, but it'd be a, a, another game around the, the country. I think that unlocks the ability to sort of go, all right, now you can overlay now you're getting to a world where you can overlay what you bet on that game um, on top of the viewing experience or have it side by side and so on. And now it's not just a second screen experience when you're watching on TV at home. But, um, and I think you know, similar actually is something that we're, we're exploring in, in, in horse racing where a lot more of our fans are viewing live races either in our app or um, over our OTT. You know, the same thing, right? Imagine a world where you can see your bet Right, overlaid, and if your horse is in the lead, you can actually light up to say you're winning this at this time, and then you know the horse drops back, and now you're not winning, and, and so on. It just changes the, um, I think the the um, all of these sort of engaging factors of actually watching a live event. Yeah, where do you think that there is going to be a challenge with innovation in this space because of how challenging it is to actually get into this space? Like it's such a barrier to entry. Um, I, look, it, yeah, it's hard, it's expensive. I mean, I know you enjoy that part of it. Because <laughs> well, I mean, I, yeah, like the, the hard part, right, I come from a product background, so I think the, the, you know, like how do we keep pushing and, and innovating and so on, but I, I mean, look, there, there are, you know, more than 15 operators now operating in the, in the state of New Jersey, so I think there are, there are probably other barriers. Do you think that in terms of, we will see the most innovation come out of New Jersey because of the fact that there's a ton of skins available and yeah. it's favorable? Yeah, you've got to create a competitive market, right? So that drives innovation, right? If you have states like Oregon or Rhode Island or others that are doing monopoly deals where it's, you know, the lottery's running it and you have a single operator there, like there's no, you're not creating an incentive for a company to go in there and actually create um, great customer experiences and invest in that. And you guys are, um, right now in a leadership position in the US, right? Yeah, yeah. And yeah. where do you attribute that success to so far? 
I, I mean, I, I think that that's one area, right? Is is obviously you know we've got um, a lot of people who are very focused on how do we make the consumer experience better, whether it's our product team and our technology teams, whether it's our trading team. You know, a lot of them are here, sort of talking to people about how do we you know build sort of next generation products that that fans are interested in. Um, so I think that's a huge part of it. Okay, uh, switching gears a little bit since this is an analytics conference. Um, in the world where there is an exchange, right, there's less of a need for a company like a Betfair to have analytics, right, because they're not determining price, the price is determined by the exchange. How important are analytics going forward to sports betting um, operators, I guess? Because like ultimately, like there's all these startups right now that are out there, and you know you can't walk around this place without someone coming up to you and saying, "Hey, I'm a, I've bet professionally. I have a good algorithm. I'd like to find a way to make money because I can't actually bet it. Like I'm not allowed to, or I've been bounced, or I can't get the liquidity down." I guess maybe I'll ask a different question: Is what advice would you give those people? You know, maybe it's come work at FanDuel for me, but like, it's, yes. you know, what, what advice would you give those people that actually want to start businesses around this and don't want to go work for the man? Work for Susquehanna. Work for Susquehanna? <laughs> okay. I would obviously say come work for us. I mean, I think, you know, if you go up to a booth and you talk to the guys and some of the things that they're working on, you know, it's... Uh, well, but how, about, how about this? What do you guys think of the bets of the companies out there like a Swish or a Simple Bet or any of these companies that are actually trying to become better at helping you know, companies originate? How do you guys think about working with them? Is that something you're interested in? Look, I, I, don't, I think we're pretty low ego around that, right? Like if somebody's come up with something that's more innovative than the stuff that we're building in-house, 100%, like we're working with those companies, we're talking to those companies and so on. So we're, we're doing both, right? A lot of our, and I, and I think back to your other question, which is, you know, why are we in a leadership position? A lot of it is because we are hiring, you know, quants and data scientists and so on to help build these things ourselves. But like, we also know that if somebody you know, um, from this audience goes and they create something that's way better than what we had, we, we want to talk to them and we will absolutely work with them too. All right, let's do one last lightning thing each of you guys has. One sentence to tell me what your, most, what your biggest fear is for legalized sports betting over the next 10 years. Just for me, removing the taboo. I mean, you hear the, the talk about you know, corruption and sort of the, the black mark that sports betting can have and just embracing it and realizing that it's a real market and there's real participation and it, it, can, be a, it can be a great experience for everybody. But just to kind of get past that, that taboo a bit would be my concern. Yep. Yeah, look, I, I would go back to sort of you know, parroting what I've already said, which is, the biggest impediment and the challenge, right? And all these things sort of, that could go wrong. I mean, obviously, you know, we take responsible gambling really, really seriously and we're investing in that. We're hiring people that are just focused on that. But all these things sort of feed up to the state-to-state -state regulatory battles that we're fighting right now and just the, the, you know, like it's hard, right? And you're, you know, there's a very good chance 10 years from now we're looking going, God, it's, you know, there's only a handful of states that have really done this the right way and created competitive markets and, you know, and all those things will, Right? There's a massive illegal market in the U.S., and all those things sort of get in the way of us being able to, to, to migrate people out of that. So I think that's, you know, to me, that's the biggest impediment to this sort of utopian world that we're, we've been talking about. I, I, would, I would agree with both of their comments, and I would just add just that it becomes 
for lack of a better phrase, too insidery. I think that's one of the challenges that DFS had was that it was this new game. And so I think there's a massive portion of the population that doesn't understand when you talk about exchange or liquidity or you know a sharp bet it down half a point or that they're not going to understand or plus EV. They, they don't understand these things. They're just like, I don't know, man. I, I think the Patriots kill them. How do I put 20 bucks on the Patriots killing them? And I literally think there's a large portion of the population that just wants something, you know, that simple that, and will get scared of whether, whether there are sharks and minnows or not, but they have the fear. They're, like, no one wants to look dumb, right? And no one wants to, and they definitely don't want to look dumb losing their own money. And so that there is, that there's not a, that, the, that it's too closed off, that it, it seems too intimidating, that you, you open up a hap, an app and there's all these options and you don't understand anything that's there. I thought, you know, on the panel yesterday, Zach Leonis has talked about the, the, what they're gonna do in, in their stadium and that they want their sports book not to look like a lounge, but like an Apple Genius Bar, where people are coming up and like, here's what we have, have you ever bet before? How can I explain this? Can I walk you through it? And I thought, that is an amazing idea and really incredible. And so that would be my fear is that not enough people have that attitude and that we don't do a good enough job of onboarding new players. And then you wanna yeah. finish this off? Yeah, my greatest fear would be some crazy government intervention. Uh, I don't know if you remember, you know, 10 years ago, so party poker was worth $10 billion and then some backroom deal to get uh, Jim Leach to vote for some bill. He he demanded that they make online poker illegal, and the next day it was worth $4 billion, and that was basically the beginning of the end of the online uh, poker world. So that just came out of the blue, uh, and without any debate or anything, just to, you know, just to get his vote on some bill, and who knows if that could happen to, uh, you know, to online sports betting, too. So one day you can, you can wake up and the rules can be uh, totally different. It's, it's a long shot, but it's uh, over time. It has a fairly reasonable probability of happening. And that's, uh, that, to me, I think is the greatest threat. Okay. Thank you, guys. Thank the panelists. Good conversation. This recording is the property of 42 Analytics and may not be published, broadcast, rewritten, or redistributed without the express written consent of 42 Analytics. Any opinions expressed by panelists are their own and do not represent the beliefs of the conference, 42 Analytics, or the MIT Sloan School of Management. 42 Analytics Educational, Inc. reserves all rights in the content.